unceded and occupied homelands of the Musqueam. This is Patchwoods. Across intersections and oceans, we hope to offer you a collection of stories about emerging and established leaders working to make change in their communities. I am very lucky today to be joined by Cree author Michelle Cook. To begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, you know, as you've said, you know, my name is Michelle Good. I'm from the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. I'm a member there. And um, I worked for many years with Indigenous organizations in a variety of capacities. Um, and then when I was 40, I went to law school at UBC. And after that, represented survivors for 14 plus years. Um, and and then uh, in 2011, I think it was, I went and started a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at UBC and uh, completed that in 2014. And that was where um, the genesis of the novel was. Well, in fact, that was why I went to the program was to, um, to actually write this book. Um, so that's me in a nutshell. To start at one of one of the sort of many beginnings that led you to where you are now, can you tell me a bit about your journey with reading and writing as someone who started writing when you were very young? Well, you know, I did start writing when I was very young. I was one of those kids, those funny little girls running around constantly with a journal under my arm. And, uh, and I, I've said before, and I'm sure I'll say again that I really feel that writers are born, not made, um, that there is a certain disposition that you have to have, and that is to be a person who observes, considers, and records. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's a very unique, you know, set of uh, skills that, um, that a writer must have, regardless of whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction, um, is that ability to observe and to give it a certain kind of consideration so that you can express it um, in a way that is unique, accurate, and meaningful. So I've, I've always been writing as long as I can remember. <laughs> um, but I just uh, um, and been threatening to write a book for many, many years. And then I finally did, um, and primarily in, in response to this ongoing failure on the part of non-Indigenous Canadian society to truly understand the history and the impact of the residential school legacy and uh, in spite of the work of many. And so I, um, I set out on that adventure and nine years later, I had a book in my hand. So <laughs> yeah, mm. <laughs> hope the next one doesn't take quite as long. As you mentioned previously, you talked about this kind of ethos of like observing, considering and recording and like the importance of witnessing. And that reminds me, there's this, this poet that I very much enjoy. Her name is Anna Matova. And in one of her poems, um, she, she's talking about waiting in line um, in Leningrad. And this is during the 30s, during the Azov terror and people recognizing her as this one-on poet. And they're saying, but you're witnessing this. Now you can record, you can tell us, you can tell people that this has happened. And so this- yes. And so like the important, and is that something, this idea of like, okay, I'm here, these are, these are my responsibilities, um, I've witnessed this, my family's experienced this, that it's important that I write this down? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are historians who are very important, you know, in the process of articulating what's gone on. Um, 
But at the same time, I often think about Winston Churchill, who said <laughs> one of my favorite quotes. He said, history, gentlemen, history will be kind to us because I intend to write it. And, you know, this is this is a sad truth is that history is written by by those who most often usurp power and um, and for history to be an, or for an honest reflection of a history. I really, really feel that you need the poets, the novelists, the storytellers um, to witness, as you say, to witness and to express it from. Um, a different perspective than the political spectra, uh, perspective, a different perspective than, you know, the, um, the reality of political geography, if you will. And I guess as you were quite young, I think you've mentioned that you were like an avid, uh, an avid diarist or someone curious diaries. Mm -hmm. like, um, how have like authors, poets and songwriters kind of like populated your life? Uh, in terms of like people you look up to or like push you forward or be like, oh, I don't want to write like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm slow to be critical of writing because it's such a personal thing. Um, and uh, but, you know, my my father was an avid reader. And so from the time we were very little, he was reading to us. And as we got older, I basically picked up whatever he was reading. And, you know, he was reading. Shakespeare, Hemingway, Steinbeck, some of the most, uh, you know, prolific and, and powerful writers of, of that earlier generation. And, um, and I fell in love with Steinbeck just completely. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and, you know, in my own search, my own, I guess, literary search, if you will, um, Canadian women writers have been so influential in my life. Um, Margaret Lawrence, Alice Monroe, Ethel Wilson, um, you know, Mar Maria Campbell, Jeanette Armstrong, Sylvia, Mar or not Sylvia Miracle, uh, Lee Miracle. And, um, you know, it's uh, Louise Erdrich, who is technically American, but, you know, that border is sort of a nebulous thing in our perspective and uh, really an imaginary line. And she's Ojibwe, so she would likely have relations in Ontario or Manitoba even and uh, and her style was very very impactful on me absolutely um, she is a master of braided narrative and braided narrative is the style of five little Indians and um, and I feel that it is more um, more reflective of indigenous storytelling than just straight linear you know chronological this happened then this happened then this happened it's a far more circular kind of way to tell a story and I I learned from her let me say I've written every or I've read everything she's written <laughs> so yeah yeah and I guess you, you mentioned a little bit about this sort of this, this driver we talked about this kind of drive and this reminded me I was listening to a couple of interviews just so that well, I mean I guess the questions are still good <laughs> some of them will still reflect but um you talked about like how I wanted to do it, I needed to do it, and so I did it. And so is this kind of ethos of like observe, consider, and record like part of this kind of thing that like pushed you throughout your life where you're like, I really would like to do this. And so I'm gonna yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it's you know, I I wanted to be, I had it uh, you know, this clear vision in my mind when I was 11 years old that I wanted to be a lawyer. And so when I hit 30 something, I thought I better get down to it. <laughs> and so I did it, <laughs> you know, the same thing with the book. And really, um, 
you know, going to the Masters of Fine Arts program was really not so much about the degree at all, because I, you know, I really had no interest in a degree. It was about, uh, because I was still managing my law firm, I was still practicing. And, uh, um, and it was about carving out time where I had obligations to my student colleagues so that I would actually take time to, you know, to do the work. Still not quite sure how I did that. It was a very busy time, let me say. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, just setting your mind to, well, first to really grasp what it is that is important to you, what it is that you feel your role is in terms of offering something to the world, and then just doing it, right? Just do it. If I can ask, I guess you, you sort of got to your 30s. And during that time, I know it's mentioned some places, you know, you were working with um, indigenous organizations since you were a teenager. And then and so could you maybe tell us a little bit about like that? You know, I mean, one of the things that I often talk about is that I was in foster care from the time I was 13 till I was 18, till I aged out when I was 18. And that would have been, you know, right around the time, a little later on, but basically around the time that my characters in Five Little Indians were aging out of residential school. And so the city of Vancouver is very fresh in my memory of, from that time. And it was so unique in a unique time. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a lot of fun to write about that. Um, but my own experiences were very similar to theirs in terms of trying to find your way without any kind of support or without any kind of uh, you know, anything except your own will, you know, to create a life for yourself. And, um, and then I started working with uh, um, this one Indigenous organization that still is around today. And, uh, uh, and that was just the beginning of a whole new life for me and, and worked, you know, with Indigenous people, well, right up to this day, really. Um, and it was a very meaningful powerful time in my life um, where my own sense of identity uh, or the sense of a need for identity, um, you know, came knocking at the door and set me on a journey, so to speak. When you talked about like being a unique time and sort of your own experience kind of populating some of the details, I, and maybe maybe I'll cut this out of the, the podcast, but like, I just like the little, while I was reading the book, just the details of like the patent leather, like, um boots like kind of hitting the back i'm like this sounds like you know sometimes you're like is this an experience <laughs> <laughs> oh no i think i just <laughs> i don't know i don't think i've ever owned a pair of patent leather boots but <laughs> oh that's not my scoop i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah just thinking about like the, the ways that those sort of like little details of your experience in vancouver the, the night and day restaurants i know my mom oh yeah yeah you know and i mean you know the the bus ride to stanley park and the, the little train in stanley park and you know the two j's cafe i don't i think it's gone now but that was a real place and you know the only seafood restaurant it was a real place the balmoral i think is just about to be demolished now um you know, all of those um, locales were real. They, you know, they existed and some of them still exist in, in the city. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun, you know, to that part of the writing was really fun because I was just going back to my own memory. I didn't have to, well, I mean, what I had to do was to find a way to write it so that it was very visual and people could see it and, you know, get the, the visual of the city. Um, but I didn't have to make it up, right? It just came from my own time there. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I guess thinking about, you know, your own experiences, and then I know you mentioned as you talked about the book, um, yeah. in other interview kind of context, how it's like also a composite of the experiences of like your mother and your grandmother, and also the, some of the individuals that you've worked with. And so what was it like, I mean, I guess working with that braid of narrative, like how did like a braid of narrative approach kind of help you to put together all those different stories in such a way to create? Well, I think one of the things that a braided narrative does is that it relieves you of the pressure of telling every single detail of every character's life, because you're basically going in for a snapshot, then you're coming out and you're going in for a snapshot of another character's life, and then you're coming out and going back. And so, and they braid together in terms of time and experience, but you're relieved of that. Well, what happened, you know, then? Well, it doesn't matter if we move on to somebody else, right? And so, yeah, it, it's a very, um, it's a very interesting way to write. And I, I, I think I, it's just the way I do it. It's just the way I tell a story, even if I'm, you know, verbally telling a story, I tend to sort of go back and forth and around and here and there, right? It's, it's just sort of the, maybe it's just the way I see the world, right? <laughs> yeah. recently so we talked a little bit about your book and we'll return yeah. to it of course um but you know also during this time the last couple of years or so you were a jv klein lecturer and just as a context for um some of the folks who are listening however many people listen um yeah. the klein lecture is an endowed lectureship awarded to individuals with outstanding expertise in areas like law and art with the goal of providing public lectures to ubc and to the broader community uh, in, in your role in this position you choreographed eight eight lectures over zoom under, <laughs> under the title of <laughs> under the title yeah. of indigenous resurgence and colonial fingerprints in the 21st century and so i guess thinking about your experience of doing this over zoom can you tell me a, a bit about like what was it like putting together these lectures well it was actually great fun i mean i i really enjoyed it immensely because it gave me um it gave me to, the excuse to touch base with some really magnificent people who have done tremendous work in their particular fields and, you know, could offer something illuminating to, um, you know, to talk about that subject in an illuminating way uh, as it pertains to literature, to law, to uh, history, to politics, to all of those kinds of things. And um, so it was it was really quite an enjoyable experience. And like I say, I just felt this real sort of guilty pleasure in being able to, you know, consider my work to be sitting down to talk with genius people, right? With, you know, people, the first, you know, I, I mean, one person I think about is, you know, Kateri Akowenzi Dam, who, you know, established an indigenous publishing house. You know, uh, Justice Leonard Marchand, who was the first, indigenous person on the court of appeal in british columbia um you know these are are people that have such profoundly important roles in our in our world right now and so it was it was great fun <laughs> and nothing really fell apart while we were doing it either which was great so, <laughs> you know nobody didn't show up right i mean everybody was there when they were supposed to be and it was all good fun it was good I know that outside of, a, of the context of a pandemic, usually these are in person. And so yeah. what was it like for you to, I guess, facilitate the question and answer period or like just kind of engage with 
with the public through like a virtual means when you know these are complicated conversations sometimes where well, people, yeah. you know they're they're complicated no matter which way you look at them whether you're sitting in a room with somebody or whether you're virtually in a room with somebody they're complex questions no matter what and i actually really enjoyed the zoom the the virtual um the virtual approach because it made uh, coordination of getting people there so much simpler um, there wasn't travel and there wasn't, you know, you know, you could carve out an hour of somebody's time instead of days because they would have to travel and, you know, this and that and the other thing. So, so I, I found it really great. Um, I, I quite enjoyed doing it that way. And I, and I think that the, uh, you know, based on the kinds of questions that we would get from, from the participants, I, I don't think that the participants felt that they were missing out on anything. Um, you know, by the fact that it was being produced virtually. So um, there was a lot of quality discussion that went on during the course of those lectures and um, and I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky to attend a few online. I know. I yeah, yeah, yeah. John Burroughs and oh, John. of like, you know, like John, who is, you know, such an important person in terms of uh, this is Professor, Professor Dr. John Burroughs, who uh, um, was one of the first, if not the first, to dif differentiate between Aboriginal law and Indigenous law, with Aboriginal law being the law that is developed under Canadian law, under the common law, and Indigenous law being our traditional laws. And, and he has, you know, often theorized in very brilliant ways about how those two can marry and how they are compatible with each other and, um, and has just made such important inroads in that respect in, in, in uh, you know, the development of law in that way. Yeah, it's an amazing man. I think this, it, it sort of reminded me, and I, I can't for the life of me find where I sourced this, but um, it was a quotation from, I think, Albert Angus, who was the, I think, one of the first Cree lawyers in Saskatchewan. And I, just, just this idea of, I think I'd watched it in a No, my relative was the first, oh, was sorry. The first oh, no. free lawyer in Saskatchewan, and his name was William Watney. Oh, no, my apologies. Yeah. I think I made, I made a mistake here, but there, were, there was a... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. He was the first lawyer, Indigenous lawyer in Canada, actually. Oh, no. Um, but anyway, what was the quotation? And he sort of talks about, um, so justice is an idea or concept where everyone needs to be fair with each other, and it's really strongly related to the word respect. So all the Cree words are intermingled into the idea of respecting each other and mm -hmm. to be fair with each other. And so just, I think, listening to the sort of the, the talk that you organized with, with Dr. Burroughs and thinking about yeah. these, um, concepts of like love and responsibility and how that's sort of built into just like sort of Indigenous ideas of lawmaking i thought it was just such an important yeah. way to think about how these legal systems are divergent but also they coexist and have to exist well they can coexist i think that's the thing is that is that so often the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous canadians is you know characterized by conflict right and by um you know just conflict and john's work has really um you know, shone a light on the fact that Indigenous law is very focused on justice and, and it is compatible, it can be compatible um, with non-Indigenous law. And that that's a real break 
you know, it's it's a relief to sometimes find a place in that relationship where it need not be constantly conflict-ridden. And so like thinking about like all this sort of coverage in terms of um, awareness of your book and then also the opportunities that's provided you to like talk with media, how has it sort of helped you to continue a lot of the conversations that you've started in your book? It's been actually a, a tremendous opportunity. I have been, um, you know, invited to give keynote lectures to conventions with teachers, social workers, uh, churches. Uh, this summer, I'm going up to the uh, uh, the gathering of the uh, International Association of Women Judges, the Canadian chapter, and I'll be speaking with them. Um, and it, it has, it's given me a phenomenal opportunity to to offer insight into the reality of our, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our often conflict-ridden relationship and the kinds of things that need to take place if we ever expect to see meaningful reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I've talked a lot about reconciliation since this book came out, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I know, including with my my colleague uh, Jane 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 Wilson, as she interviewed you, and you made yes. I think a very important distinction around like not just it's not about peacemaking, but rather about seeing it in terms of like accounting. The idea that, yeah, like, yeah, like it's not just oh dear, sorry, you know. It's I see I see reconciliation in the same way a bookkeeper does that you bring a balance, you restore a balance to that relationship, and you know that. You know, people need to understand, non-Indigenous Canadians need to understand that their position must change in order for ours to improve. It's just a it's just a numbers game when you think about it, right? It's to, you know, we we were completely self-sufficient um, and self-governing, and we provided for ourselves 100%. And then we were uh, placed in a intentionally placed in a position where our 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 economies would be characterized by poverty and by um, control through law and policy that that uh, subverted that independence and subverted that economic self-reliance intentionally. And that has to switch. And people need to understand that they need to make room. Their lives must change if ours are going to change. I know in some of your lectures, you sort of reference this book called Seeing Red, A History of Natives in Canadian yes. Newspapers. And this idea that like it's so entrenched that they're, you know, um, it's sort of talked about like this curriculum. And I guess the question that I was very slowly kind of leading up to is just as you sort of engage with interviewers, like myself as well, I suppose, what way does this curriculum kind of pop up? or like in terms of what is asked or what is not asked? And I guess what, as you kind of engage in more interviews? Well, I think, you know, most importantly, it's this understanding, you know, it's, I saw this funny thing on Facebook and I, I, I just, I was just howling with laughter, right? And it said, um, at the beginning of every month, I go over to my landlords and I do a rent acknowledgement. I don't <laughs> give them any money, but I acknowledge. <laughs> the relationship, right? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it sounds silly and it is, it's funny, but it's absolutely true, is that an, a land acknowledgement without, I mean, and I, I don't mean to dismiss the importance of this. I mean, I've seen over the course of my life where, um, you know, the, the, the narrative has moved from we defeated you to we acknowledge that this is, is your territory. 
But the next step is we acknowledge this is your territory and here's what we can give you. We can return to you so that the relationship can stop being um, so uh, uneven, um, so inequitable. And, um, and that it's that next step that I think people find very difficult um, because they don't know how to go about doing it. And to that, I say, listen, you know, Indigenous people form this tiny percentage of the Canadian population. We are the most likely to commit suicide, to live in poverty, to be undereducated, over-incarcerated. All of the negative statistics reach, start with us. You know, we're the majority in those. And still, we were able to organize and change the Canadian constitution. We did that. Nobody gave that to us. We did that. And if we can do that in this deeply con you know, uh, compromised state that colonialism left us in, then what could the rest of Canada do if they organized around reconciliation? If they organized the way we organized and said, yes, okay, time for the change, not the talk, the change. Imagine what could be accomplished. And so that's what I encourage people to do is to, you know, and, you know, I'm not overly hopeful, I have to say, um, you know, the idea of non-Indigenous people organizing on behalf of meaningful reconciliation is a dream, something that I would love to see. Um, who knows? I know, I, I know that like a lot of the, the important criticisms around land acknowledgements have to often sort of revolve, as, as you mentioned, like it has to be more than yeah. words. It's not just semantics yeah. and, you know, like sovereignty is not conditional. You can't like, you know, declare That's sovereignty right. and be like, oh, but, you know, if we need some of the land for X, Y, and Z, then we're going to. We're just going to take it. We're just going to take, take it. it. That's yeah. not sovereignty, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. As books like yours and many other sort of young and up and coming um, Indigenous authors and academics sort of navigate through these systems and emerging authors as well because emerging is not synonymous with young and all that no it's not <laughs> clearly yeah. <laughs> yeah and just that like yeah these systems are not like dismantled or just like meaningfully challenged then mm -hmm. you know well and you know people think about land back mm -hmm. and they think it's some kind of big radical you know militant indigenous movement or it's not it's that's what reconciliation is is the return of resources under our jurisdiction and the release of indigenous populations from the stranglehold of federal law and policy right um and you know i, I will believe it in it until my dying day and then I'll come back and haunt people who are standing in the way. <laughs> uh, yes. Five Little Indians was something that you've written over the period of, of nine years, and a lot happened over that nine years. Um, you know, the book. Um, as, as you talked about, sort of began as a, as a sort of project for your your master, your MFA, and then yeah. afterwards. I guess if you would like to walk us along that sort of journey, because I know in others you talked about mentorship coming in and all those different ways that like. Oh right, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it was a very busy time in my life. Um, you know, I was still managing my firm and practicing law, and you know, attending 
many, many hearings, you know, hearing after hearing after hearing and so on. Um, but the other thing that, you know, especially in retrospect, when I look back on it, um, is that there were so many challenging things about writing this book and things that, that were so um, potentially harmful, you know, um, things that could potentially trigger survivors of trauma and you know so so you you just can't embark on something like that lightly um it's something that you have to give enough time so that you know you've got it right um so that people who are reading it will recognize it will recognize it for the truth of the subject matter um and so you know there was there was that aspect of why it took so long the busyness and the carefulness if you will um but you know i had never written a novel before i'd never written anything longer than a short story before a very short story right? <laughs> and uh you know so there was my whole um learning curve that was involved that you know that i think precipitated some of that um time involved in in finally producing the book and uh I had a couple of manuscript evaluations done by um, writers and authors that, um, you know, one in particular who was one of my professors at UBC. <laughs> I, I asked her at one point to, to do this. And I, I said, you know, there's something structurally wrong here. And I, I'm just not experienced enough to identify what the issue is. So. So she told me about all the things she would do that I'd get about 20 pages of notes and then we'd have a phone call and we'd talk about it and so on. And, and, uh, and then I got an email from her that was about half a page. And I thought, what? <laughs> so I read it and she said, this is a wonderful book, but you need to cut the first five chapters, which was what? Like, what? <laughs> And, you know, and then I read on and, and she was really clear that she wasn't saying get rid of all this content, but that's not where your book starts. Your book starts over here. Mm -hmm. And she was right. She was absolutely right. And so it took me a whole year to take all of that stuff that was in those first five chapters and reintegrate it into the flow of the novel. And as you know, the novel bounces back and forth in time. So it was a very complex process to reintegrate all of that in a way that wouldn't upset the continuity of of the storytelling so yeah so i did that and then uh you know did a little bit of editing and a little bit of uh revision and uh and then you know submitted it so yeah i guess taking some of the learnings that you um had during this period and as you sort of move on to writing your or thinking about or maybe potentially writing your, your second your second novel how is that kind of informed how you can it or is it just something you forget about it and then you're in the process oh no oh no I, <laughs> <laughs> you definitely learn right you definitely learn and uh or i should say i've definitely learned and uh one of the things that i have been just incredibly careful about with the new novel is knowing that I'm starting at the beginning, right? Um, you know, being certain that this is in fact where I want the story to start and um, or where the story does start, period, right? And so, you know, so I, I will never make that mistake again, I'll tell you. 
yeah so yeah so yeah but you do you learn along the way what works and you know also a lot of the a lot of the reader reviews about the book have praised it for not um going into gory details about the abuse itself but just you know suggesting it sufficiently so that people would know what had occurred but not you know sort of gratuitously uh, overwriting that aspect of the story and um you know that was something i had to learn i you know i mean the first the first drafts of the novel were far more explicit and um you know it was a real it was also a learning curve about how how to intimate rather than to explicate um and to have it equally meaningful and so all of those things that you learn along the way you know are things that will contribute to the next book for sure maybe this is a question coming from my my own curiosity so forgive my I, I, no worries yeah. I, have some, I, have, I have a limited amount of experience in creative writing but how do you oh gosh maybe this is too philosophical but like no 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 just how, go ahead how do you how do you know when a story starts or how do you know where to start a story knowing that like for example with with your book um you know you have five stories Kenny, Lucy, Clara, Howie, and Maisie, like, and they're all, you know, different times they were at their, at the residential school. Like, how do you know, like, how do you, you know, <laughs> how? How do you know? Well, I think the first thing is to know what story it is that you want to tell. Um, overall, what is the story you want to tell? And that's not, I mean, that sounds sort of self-evident, but it isn't, you know, like, for example, I had a, a long whole chapter in there about how Sister Mary became such a monster. I cut it out completely because that's not the story I set out to tell and didn't really want to give any airtime to abusers, right? Um, and so, it, it, you know, so I think, you know, that's the first one. What is the story you want to tell? Um, and and I think once you feel certain about that, and it doesn't always happen, you know, before you start writing, it often happens, you know, once you've started writing and you go, oh, hmm, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. And, you know, and, you know, and you become informed that way about where it should start, where it should end. Where it should end, I think, is actually more challenging even than where it should start. Um, and, you know, knowing that it's over, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, because there's, there's, um, you know, there's books that I've read, you know, where I get to the end and I go, no, right? You know, no, I don't want it to end, right? And then there's books that I've read where it's like, oh man, you know, this story actually ended two chapters ago. And you don't want that. You don't want to overwrite your story. And, um, you know, so, and, you know, but it, it, especially in this novel, it was again about how the stories connected with each other that led it to a logical conclusion and uh you know we'll see how the next one comes but the next one is more um focused on on some very specific historical events and uh, and so it'll kind of be framed by that and the beginning and the end will be framed by it as well so yeah and i know i mentioned when i was sort of listing the very um, very well-earned um, <laughs> prizes um, I've received. It included being sort of adapted as a limited television series. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, 
I don't, I don't know how far ahead in the process. Maybe I can't even ask. Maybe I can't even ask those questions. But like, no, what is you it? can. Okay. But it's from what I can gather, and of course, I'm very inexperienced at this too. Um, that it's it's quite a lengthy process from you know the moment of the book being optioned to the time that you're actually going to see something on the screen. Mm. Um, you know, but we're we're moving along. I don't want to talk too too much about it because well, you know, there's a there's an appropriate way of doing that. And I don't think this podcast is it. Right? <laughs> um, but it is moving forward and it's exciting. And, you know, one of the things that I really love about it is that there's a lot of people that don't read. And, uh, you know, and I'm working with a production team that is really dedicated to the heart of this book. And, um, and I feel confident that what we produce will be an accurate reflection of the book. And so those people that that you know are not big readers will have the opportunity to to get the story without reading the book. Maybe it'll inspire them to read the book. You never know. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm always interested when I think about like books sort of being like you know translated into television. You know, like all these different things we need to take into consideration. You know, taking the the things that yeah. sort of exist in our mind versus you know what they look like. In well. The well, yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I talk a lot about when I speak with, you know, aspiring writers is that um, one of the things that you really need to understand is that your reader is the co-author of the book in the sense that you need to leave enough room between the lines for the reader to have room to conjure their own images of what's happening. Um, and, you know, and that's to me, when you don't do that, that's that's a real case of overwriting, and you're you're limiting the experience of the reader by doing that. So yeah. Yeah, I just really I really appreciate you making making time today. Um, I know it was a little for, for me as I was preparing, it was a little weird of like, <laughs> how do I talk about the lectures? Because there's there's so there's so much, and over the, course, <laughs> over the and just over the course of your life, as, as I was just going on. Like, you know, just the way that you're like sort of advocacy and the way that you like help folks is like always sort of like, yeah, you know, taken many different forms throughout the course of your life and will continue to as I think in some of the things you talked about, like, oh, I thought it was sort of in my last chapter, but now I've like written the book and then there's more. When does it stop? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I just wonder, like, are there ever questions? And maybe this is this is a weird thing to ask but like are there ever questions that you hope people would ask in terms of like the, the the books or just generally in terms of how you approach writing or think about writing that you think are often missed because people are very focused on like oh this happened in your life uh, trauma like, tell me more about this or like you know sometimes it's kind of over i don't know you know i i'm pretty laid back about it all you know and and i figure that people will ask questions and and you know very often i get a lot of the same questions and i mm -hmm kind of amuse myself by seeing how many different ways I can answer them <laughs> truthfully. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I mean, that's a that's a reality, right, is that, uh, um, you know, there are multiple layers to, you know, virtually any question that is asked either about the work I do, or the writing or the advocacy or any of it, right. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, you know, it's my pleasure. Thank you, too. And you take care.
Patchworks is a podcast brought to you with the support of Green College at the University of British Columbia. Music composed and arranged by Judith Valerie Engel and Gabriel Ladstead. Audio editing by Olivia Wheeler. Thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again.